For those of you who are unaware, uh, Chiwara is one of our PT members, as is Coralie. So uh, you've been ministered to by a couple of our elders this morning, which is great. Well, we're obviously continuing <clears throat> in our series in 1 John. And uh, last week, as we uh, covered what was in the passage there, the distinguishing factor um, that John, sorry, John discussed what the distinguishing factors were between children of God and children of the devil. And uh, Pastor Darrell and myself used a common Christian, um, uh, sorry, a phrase that is commonly used in Christian circles in a number of places. We as Christians, as we draw closer and closer to God, do not become sinless, but we should be, we should be people who sin less. And so there should be this progression. There should be this drawing closer to God and becoming more and more like him. And that is evidence that we truly are children of God. And John wanted us to understand that that very term, that term of being children of God, is not just a phrase that is used for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a positional statement. We have gone from being children of the devil to being children of God. And, and, and that means that we are part of his family. That means that we have been adopted by him. And again, with those ever-increasing steps and increments, we should be reflecting more and more the character of God and less and less of the character of the world. We should show his purposes, his will and his love in our lives each and every day. But hear and understand, we will never fully perfect that this side of eternity. It's something that we continue to do, but we never attain until that day when we stand in his presence in glory. I want you to think about this love of God, a love which Paul attempted to explain in Ephesians 3, a love that is the foundation of all God's actions. It's a love that has a breadth and length and height and depth beyond our comprehension, a love that surpasses all knowledge of man, a love they couldn't be more graphically demonstrated than in the life and death of Jesus. And when we reflect upon the cross and what Jesus did there, what is it that we see? It's a love that knew no bounds. It's a love that refused to shrink from any sacrifice. It's a love that comes from the very depth of who God is. It's a love which cannot and will not ever be extinguished. It's a love that cannot be damaged or dampened by anything, including the weight of human sin. A love that continues to draw wretched people into a loving relationship with Jesus. Last week, the message could possibly have been summarised in one verse, <clears throat> 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That was the last verse that we spoke on last week. And John takes the last part of this verse and discusses it at length in the passage that we've had read to us by Chiwa this morning. He calls us to love but it isn't just about love. It's about putting love in action. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your presence with us. I thank you you've heard our prayers. I thank you you've heard how Coralie prayed, Lord. 
And you've heard the prayers of those present here this morning who perhaps prayed before the service, who prayed during this service. And Lord, I ask now that, that you'll hear my prayer and, and that this message will be something that touches people's lives, that will change them, that will transform them, that will draw them closer to you. Challenge us by power of Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, and help us to put some of these things in place. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are interested, we do have the question sheets up the back, just uh, the missions board there, so please grab one of those on the way out. I'll tell you now because I'm likely to forget at the end of the service, so please forgive me for that. Uh, also, for those of you who are running, wondering, Pastor Darrell is actually down doing Cantonese and Mandarin this morning, and uh, he's hoping to bring the message this evening. So <coughs> please be praying for him. It's a big day. So as we continue to move through this letter of John, uh, we must constantly remind ourselves who John was and the very fact that he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw how Jesus loved. He saw how Jesus led his life. And he knew that Jesus was the great example of, of love and how we should be living as followers of Jesus. Jesus didn't just talk of love. Jesus demonstrated it in everything that he did. His compassion for the lost multitudes, how he healed the sick, how he fed the hungry, how he encouraged the lonely and how he gave himself upon the cross for our sins. His call for us is no different to the way that he lived himself and it's a call to love. And John continues to compare and contrast those who are of Jesus and those who are, of, are not, those who are of the devil or are of the world. And his desire is to make it very clear to us that love and hate are mutually exclusive for the Christian and for their life. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And John is calling his listeners to again reflect on this message, the gospel that they had heard spoken. And specifically, he points to the aspect of love that is part of that message. And when he says for here, he's pointing back to what came previously. So he's pointing back to what he has said, particularly in verse 10. He says that those who do not practice love towards their brother or sister... And not of God. Just dwell in that for a moment. And it's almost as if, as so many do today, John's aware that people are going to defend their position and their actions. And he says, we should not be like Cain. I think I've done what I feared I did. No, there you go. That's good. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. And his brother's righteous. Now, I know the vast majority of us say, well, I am not like Cain. And I would possibly agree with you there. But the thing is, we can't miss what is being said here. Think about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel had the same parents. They both sought to worship the same God, the one true God. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was rejected. And when Cain saw that his sacrifice was rejected, he became angry. And he didn't deal with that anger in a way that was beneficial. He didn't overcome that anger. He fed it instead. And so his anger and jealousy grew to that point where he murdered his younger brother. Cain's actions demonstrate he was the, of the evil one, Satan or the devil. And we need to realise that which we hold in our hearts 
will eventually be revealed in our actions. You cannot harbour anger and jealousy and all those things that are not of God and expect that you can continue to live for him. It is simply impossible. And it is not possible to demonstrate love to another and to others in general if you harbour anger, bitterness and hate in your hearts. And John drives the point home. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here he is again referring to the fact that God's children will demonstrate a mutual love. Each of us are to love our brothers and sisters. And this is an ongoing, continuous term. It's something that is to be more and more true in our lives. It's a positional statement. Again, those who love like this are the ones who have passed from death to life. It is clearly evident in how they live and how they interact with others. And when we truly love each other here, that's going to bring greater unity. It's going to bring greater fellowship to us. And John uses similar terms in John 5.24, where Jesus says, Those who hear his words and believe him who sent Jesus have passed from death to life. It's that positional statement once more. And the flip side of this is, those who do not love like this abide, remain in, or dwell in death. They do not have eternal life in them. And it's likely that John is referring to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21, where Jesus says, Those who hate their brothers will be subject to the same type of judgment as one who murders his brother. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Remember, this is talking about those who do not love um, being those who abide in death. In these verses, John is indicating those who continually fail in this area. It's not those who have had something happen and the anger flares and the jealousy flares and then they strive to deal with it. He's not talking about those type of people. This is people who have habitual habits of anger and outbursts and hatred towards others. They're people who do not fully submit themselves to God, who refuse to try who make excuses for their actions. And if they don't love and to continue to harbour these ill feelings towards others, then they're abiding in death. They're not abiding in life. But living righteously and loving others doesn't mean we will have it easy. John tells us that we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. And don't be surprised when you are loving, righteous, living for Jesus and people hate you. Think about Abel. Abel was doing everything right. He was doing everything to honour and glorify God. And yet his brother hated him. He saw someone who was accepted by God. And he hated Abel for that. The world will hate us. But that doesn't excuse us. The call and command remains the same. Christian love is always actioned. We can't just sit on these premises, folks. John has written to us, And let us know that love is marked, or is a mark, of those who've passed from death to life. I find it interesting to think of Adam's firstborn here. Adam was a sinner, and his firstborn was Cain. Cain 
provides the supreme example of hate, taking his brother's life. Jesus was the firstborn of God. He demonstrated the perfect example of love. And by this, we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. All true believers who read this letter know what love is because they've acknowledged what Jesus has done for them. Jesus' love is one that expends itself in the interest of others. And when we understand that love, we understand that we've been accepted regardless of the sins that we've committed. And we understand the grace that God has provided in that love. And so when we are called to that same type of love, it is a love that is sacrificial of us. Think about who Jesus was. Jesus was the one who created everything that we see and touch, including ourselves. He was worshipped by angels. He was enthroned in glory. He was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And he showed his love to each of us in coming to this earth first and foremost and living fully as a man and then in giving his life up for each one of us. His love is a love that is not dependent upon a return. It is not conditional. We, right or wrong, love that song, Reckless Love. Not because God is reckless, but because by human standards, his love was reckless. There was no expectation of a return. It is a love that Jesus expresses to each one of us. Not when we've got our act together, not when we're living well, but when we're at our worst. Jesus' love is a love that reaches out to others. It's not affected by circumstances. It's not affected by emotions. It's not affected by feelings. It's a love that Jesus expresses to everyone. And Jesus' love reaches out to others in order to change their circumstances and to change them for the better. It's a love that has an impact. Isn't that why you gave your life to Jesus in the first place? Because his love impacted you. Your eyes were opened to all that he had done. And if he calls you to love others in the same way, shouldn't it be a love that surprises them? A love that they weren't expecting? A love that is generous? It's how we're told to live. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, not, not, sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Bottom line, John's saying love is more than just words. It isn't something that only the wisest and strongest and most devout Christians can actually do. It is a down-to-earth, practical, outworking love. It isn't a word to ponder, it's a word to action. And we've been given the example of Jesus' love demonstrated in his willingness to lay down his life for each and every one of us. But John is not necessarily calling us to die here. We die to ourselves. That is still a Christian foundational basic truth. But John's not calling us to die here. He's calling us to conduct a self-examination. He's calling us to consider why we do what we do. He's calling us to look at that and then respond to that. 
And if that involves confession and returning to Jesus and asking for his forgiveness and then moving on with him, that's what we need to do. He's calling us that if we ever shut the door on someone that we were prompted to help, we need to open that door and go back to that person and see if we can sort that out. Have you been? Or are you in at the moment a situation where you saw a Christian brother or sister in need and you had the ability to help? You had the resources that were required. What was your response? Did you help? Are you in the middle of helping? Are you looking at doing that? Because that's what he's calling us to. He isn't addressing the richest people. Although they're part of this as well. This is for every person who has the means and ability to help others. Do you help? Did you help? Or did you close the door? If you did, if you closed that door, if you closed your heart to them, John says, how does God's love abide in you? He's saying, how can you say you're a Christian? That's not the Christian way. That's not what we do. That is not what Jesus has called us to. Because we should be obeying him and loving others just as he's commanded us. This is a recurring theme all throughout scripture. And when you think about the Old Testament and Israel, and they're constantly called to be generous and lend to the poor. And they're told, you know, they had the year of Jubilee where all debts were cancelled. And they were told, you know, if it's getting close to the year of Jubilee, lend the money anyway. Knowing that that debt may be cancelled and you never actually get that back. He says, do it anyway. We need to be generous towards our brothers and sisters. We have to do it. And, and when we think about God's great generosity to us, when we think about all he has blessed us, when we think of the privilege of living in this country, we are abundantly rich. And can I encourage you, if you don't believe that, Google World Rich List and put in the amount of money that you earn every year. I guarantee you everyone in this room is in the top 10% of the world. We are very wealthy in Australia. We have free medical help. If anyone here was to collapse right now, they would get the best medical aid that they could possibly get. There'd be an ambulance here in a flash. And there's places in the world where they'd just be left lying there. We are incredibly privileged in this country. What is calling us to is to acknowledge the incredible blessing that God's given us and the privilege of being in this country. With great privilege comes great responsibility. We are called to hold everything that we have very loosely in our hands. And if God calls us to release that, we release that. Because guess what? It's not mine anyway. God gave it to me. And he can do and say whatever he wants with anything that is mine. Yes, I might have troubles giving my car up if God calls me to do that. But I would. That's, that's part and parcel of what we're called to do. To hold everything loosely. In a nutshell... John is telling us if we love the way that we profess, that we say we do. And if that love is not accompanied by action, an action which helps the needy, then what we call faith is an empty religion. 
It's not Christianity. It's not following after Jesus. Because that's not the way he is. And Christians become more and more like him each and every day. True Christianity will exhibit love. A love that is moved to action. A love that reflects the love of Jesus. A love that he first showed us. And if we do that, and I can testify to this, we find this incredible assurance. Because you know what? There's nothing in the Charlie before Christ who would be generous and loving to anyone. I'd keep it all for myself. And John's purpose in this letter is to reassure Christians of the salvation they have and the eternal life that they have with Christ. And he spends the next three verses talking about that. He speaks about the assurance that we have as a result of being generous, loving others. And he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. We shall know that we are of the truth. We have this assurance of truth because we are generous towards others, because we are loving others the way that we should. This verse begins with, by this. So John is pointing back to this command to love. And he's saying that, you know, if you love like this, then you will have this assurance of being in the truth. And he knows that he has progressed, that there's this progression through the letter, sorry. Many, as they've gone through this letter and they've read it, and I have no doubt there's people here who doubt their salvation, who doubt um, if they're truly followers of Christ, who remember the things they've messed up over and questioning whether Jesus could really love them. And John's saying, well, I want you to understand it. I want you to get this. He wants to be able to answer those questions. Am I really born of God? Have I really loved enough? Have I walked in the light enough? Am I still in the dark? How can I know? And John wants to answer those questions for us. And he says, if you are obeying God's command to love, if you are doing that again and again, then you can be assured of your salvation. And the word translated here, reassure, is a very powerful word. I want you to think to Matthew 28, 14. And the guards, are, uh, they had been guarding Jesus' tomb. And they went to the high priest after the angel fell, moved back the rock, and Jesus rose from the dead and went out. And they come to the high priest and they say, this is what happened. And the high priest said, don't tell anyone that. You tell them you fell asleep. You tell them that while you were sleeping, his disciples came and took the body. And they said, well, man, we're in trouble here because our commander will kill us if we say we fell asleep. And the high priest says, don't worry about that. I will make sure, I will assure you that is not going to happen. We will appease your commander. That's the word that's used here. And so we have that ability to assure ourselves. This is a word that means to pacify, to soothe, to reassure or to set at rest. And so when we are obedient to this command to love, when we see that actioned in our lives, when we accept that, we can have an assurance that we have eternity with Christ. But some of us still beat ourselves up, don't we? And so John says this. this I don't know about you, but this really messes with my head, this verse. Yeah, thank you, Chiwa. Is this the one you came to have answered this morning? I don't think I'm going to help you, brother. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, 
If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence with God. The last bit is easy. But so often when we look at ourselves, we feel unworthy, we feel insecure, we doubt we're forgiven. But God is greater than our heart. He's greater than our thoughts. And we need to anchor our assurance in God and God alone, what he says and his word. It isn't about how I feel. It isn't about what I think. Jesus' death on the cross, this is what we need to understand. Jesus' death on the cross paid sin once and for all. And so when we're beating ourselves up over the sins that we don't think we can be forgiven for, when we think we're not living rightly in those types of things, we need to return to God when we're made aware of those things. We need to repent and we are forgiven. We are forgiven. God remembers that no more. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. That is the assurance of forgiveness. And what do we do? How could God ever forgive me? And we get that little voice in our ear. You're dirty. God doesn't love you. There's no way he'll forgive you. If my young adults were here, some of them might be muttering. I reject that thought. That is not of Jesus, so I don't think that way either, because that is the truth. Our sins are forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. We need to think of them no more, because God doesn't. Yes, when we're prompted about stuff we have committed, sins we have committed anew and afresh, we need to confess and return to God. But once we do, they're done and dusted. They're finished. The price has been paid, and we're forgiven. When we focus on God, constantly accepting his forgiveness, we have a greater confidence before him. And I believe John is referring to the two blessings uh, here that we receive as a result. God will answer our prayers, uh, as we heard read out in verse 22. And we also have the blessing of Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He abides in us. And that's is spoken of in verse 24. And so the confidence we have in answered prayer... This is gained by keeping God's commands and living in a way that pleases him. Is that not what it says here? God does not answer the disobedient. He does not respond to the prayers of those who are not following and honouring and glorifying him and, and living as he has told them to live. And the tense here in the Greek indicates that this is a present and ongoing action. This is the way your life is from now on. It is something that we will never stop doing. We continue to obey his commands and continue to do what is pleasing him. And it seems again that John is worried that we're not going to get it, that we're not going to understand. So he lays it out pretty clearly for us. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus and love one another just as he commanded us. And this is not just belief in Jesus. There's plenty who believe in Jesus and yet won't be in heaven. This is to obey everything that he says. Belief in Jesus and obey all he says. Everything. No exclusions. Foundational to our faith is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And this is a literary device that John uses here and it's used throughout scripture as well. It allows a part to be mentioned, but the whole is intended. So when he mentions the name of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, his intention is that everyone will think about the very person of who Jesus is, the very things that Jesus did and all that that involves. This is about Jesus himself and his actions and attitudes and commands upon us. And for us, it is again pointing to that time when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, that one truth that we can all cling to, that my sins were forgiven. And if you didn't experience that when you gave your life to Christ, I need you to come and talk to me. Because I don't know how you can experience forgiveness of sin if you didn't get that that first time. And we go back to that one truth and we can say, Jesus is real because I know he forgave my sin. When I gave my life to him, that's what happened. John then says, we're to love one another. And we never outgrow or advance past this, past the need to love one another. In reality, as we mature in faith, as we draw closer to God, there should be an increasing evidence of our growing love for God and for others. And uh, this week in my personal quiet time, I read about Stephen. And and I'm just amazed about the early church. They needed people basically to distribute food to widows. What did they look for in those people? They wanted them to be spiritually active. They wanted them to be mature Christians. They wanted people who were committed to Christ to wait on tables. And Stephen was a man who was so holy. When people looked upon him, they saw the face of an angel. He never boasted about that. He just did what he was called to do. And he loved everyone so powerfully. And he just did his thing. And people looked upon him and their lives were changed as a result because Stephen just loved them. And the world hated him too, eh? But this is a struggle for many of us. It's a struggle for me. There's been so many times and so many situations where it seems it'd be better just to punch someone in the face than actually love them. Okay, I admit it, that wouldn't work for me. Baseball bat would be better. (laughs) But seriously, it is so hard sometimes. That doesn't give me the right to take my situations, my feelings, and circumvent the clear command of God to do what I think is right. I don't get to project onto God what I think he should do. I don't get to project onto God those I think he should smite. When I do think that way, I'm sinning. I'm called to obey. And when I look at this command, with God's great love for me, in mind what else can I do I have to obey I have to submit and when I feel like you're picking up that baseball bat I've got to go to him and seek his guidance I've got to go to him and ask for a change of heart I've got to go to him and ask for forgiveness And then I pray for that person I wanted to take the baseball bat to. And I don't just mean, Lord, let them drop dead. It's, Lord, will you bless them? 
Will you let them have an awesome week this week? Will you give them their heart's desires? Because when we pray for others and we pray God's blessing upon them, it's pretty hard to continue to hate them. That's God's way. He loved me first. And you've heard me say it, and it's not a cliche. There wasn't anything in me that he could love, but he did anyway. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's plenty of room for me to improve in this area, in loving others. John says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. John has called us to continue in faith and love and now he calls us to obey all God's commands. Don't hear that obeying God's commands gives you salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, We are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. There's nothing I've done to gain my salvation. It was all on God. But we are still expected to live in accordance to God's word. It is only, it's not only how we show we are true followers of Jesus, but it's in fact the way we strengthen our relationship with God and grow to maturity. We need to submit all of ourselves to him and his authority. We need to realise too that fear, doubt and lack of assurance of our salvation are not of God. Hear that very clearly. They are not of God. They're of the devil. And the devil doesn't want us to be secure in our relationship with God. Because those who are secure, they grow stronger in faith. Those who are secure reject the schemes and plans of the devil. Those who are secure live and honour and glorify God more and more each day. And you know what? They're obedient to God, so they're drawing others into the kingdom as well. They trust God. But likewise, God doesn't want us to flounder and wonder if we're truly saved or not. He wants us to have victory in Christ. Have you read that in Scripture, brothers? Sisters? Yeah, amen. And he wants to live with that each and every day. He wants us to know that victory. He's given us Holy Spirit who lives in us. He gives us a confidence in our salvation. He gives us a hope that we will spend eternal life with Jesus and with God our Father and with Holy Spirit. Remember that first commitment. Remember the assurance of our sins being forgiven. And then stop worrying about if we are saved or not. And start living for him. Position the rest of your lives in the fact of his incredible love and grace. Let's be obedient to him and let's begin to love others. Father God, I thank you so much for this word this morning. I thank you for the challenges that are contained. And Lord, I, I want to pray for everyone here. I ask, Lord, that you've challenged people. I've asked that you softened hearts. Lord, I ask if anyone has to do business with you and if they feel the need to be helped there, that they'll come to the front for prayer. Father, may your name be honoured and glorified in our thoughts even now. May you be elevated and lifted up. And as we head into this week, Lord, help us to be more like you. Help us to understand the love that you've poured out upon us. Help us to love others as you've called us to love. And may our very lives honour and glorify you, not so that 
people look at us and think how great we are, but so people look at us and worship and glorify you because we say we do what we do solely because of what you've done for us. You are a good God. Father, go with us and before us. Bless us as we head into this week. Give us your strength and power to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless one and all. Thank you so much for being with us here. Thank you to those of you online as well. Remember the whiteboard up the back. I want to see that full before you guys leave. Okay.